Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Michael McConnell, who is the author of The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution. This book was published in 2020 by Princeton University Press, and it is a deep dive into our understanding of Article 2 of the Constitution and how the framers approached the powers of the executive. But I'm going to ask Michael to tell us a little bit about that as well as how he came to this particular project, a part, parts of which were also presented at Princeton University, I believe. Um, and so, Michael, welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. And can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project um, and why you decided to write the book on executive power under the Constitution, perhaps when you did? Well, thank you. Uh, and I've been teaching a course on the creation of the Constitution, of which this would be a a part for uh, decades now. And the presidency was always a bit of a puzzle. If you you just take out your pocket copy of the Constitution and you read Articles 1, 2, and 3, uh, Article 3 is fairly compact, obviously written by people who know what the judiciary is about. It makes perfectly good sense. Everything you would expect to be there is there. It's in the right order. Uh, The Article 1 is a little more sprawling, a little bit more uh, disorganized, but still very well thought through. It doesn't have glaring gaps. Uh, Article 2 is a bit of a jumble. And, you know, major things that you would expect the executive to be able to do aren't mentioned. Fairly trivial things are there. Uh, it's um, it's really difficult to, to, to think that, you know, did they just not have many ideas about the executive? We do know that as Matt Madison was such an important theorist for much of the Constitution, but just before he left for the Philadelphia Convention, he wrote a letter to uh, George Washington in which he said he had scarcely conceived of either the the powers that should be vested in the executive or the manner in which he should be chosen. So our leading theorist was at sea. But the more I got into it, uh, the more I began to think that there was a logic to Article 2. It's just that it is a little bit harder to unpack. Now, you ask why I did it when I did. Well, um, I actually got started right during the second part of the Obama administration at a time when I just assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to be elected president. I don't think it's any uh, secret that Obama had you know, continued and very effectively expanded the powers of the president. He was more open about how unilaterally he intended to rule with the with the pen and the phone. Uh, and had um, Hillary Clinton been elected, 
I don't think there's much doubt we would have just continued in that vein. And about half of the book was already written and heavily researched by then, and that was the political backdrop. I think it probably would have sunk without very much attention if that had been true. Uh, People would have thought it quaint for me to even think that maybe the president is subject to constraint. She would have continued the tradition. The newspapers would have thought that was fine. The courts would have thought that was fine. Uh, There wouldn't have been much resistance. And instead, uh, a very unusual person uh, got elected president, somebody with no real ties to his own political party and reviled by the other party, someone who would be at war with his own uh, administration, someone who had very little familiarity with the way things work in Washington and just did things in different ways, you know, sometimes for better, often for worse, but differently always. And, and so suddenly the powers of the president come to the, to the uh, headlines again. And as I'm finishing up the book, uh, uh, during the Trump administration, what I find is that the enduring principles of article two apply just as much when it's uh, Donald Trump as when it's a Hillary Clinton. And, uh, and that may be the most important message is that we need to think about separation of powers and cross-partisan terms. I don't mean nonpartisan, quite cross-partisan because you know, the most important principle is what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And and you you know you talk about the expectation that this was going to be a continuation in a Hillary Clinton administration, but then as you know the striking uh, thing happened of Donald Trump being elected, and since that time also we've seen a rise in a lot of people looking at the executive, looking at the powers of the presidency from different angles, um, and and coming at it from legal and political science and historical perspectives, um, and. And one of the things that that caught my eye in your introduction was that you note that history casts light on constitutional meaning. Um, and oftentimes this is considered when the Constitution is then put into place during a particular historical period. But your argument is that we need to look at the history that came before the Constitution in order to understand it. I think that's what you're saying. Um, Can you talk a little bit about both what you're talking about with regard to that history, as well as the experience that you talk about the founders having and what we really understand of that time? Yes, there is not a a word in Article 2, maybe not in the whole Constitution, but certainly in the executive power section of Article 2 that is not informed by the experience that the men at Philadelphia had and knew about from the struggles between uh, the British Crown and Parliament and also the struggles between the royal governors and the various colonial uh, legislatures. And coming up through, and, and even the the problems, not so much the struggles as the lamentable almost catastrophic lack of power in the executive branches of the various states under the early state constitutions between independence uh, and our constitution. So uh, Article 2 is very much historically informed. 
may I tell the what happens at the very beginning? I just think this is so interesting, so fun. Uh, the The Virginia plan was kind of a, the first draft of a constitution. Madison was the principal author, but it was presented by uh, Edmund Randolph, the governor of Virginia. Uh, and when they get to the the executive power plank on the third day of debate over the Virginia plan, uh, it's it's read out and <clears throat> it vests all of the executive powers of the uh, of the former government in the executive and um, and sort of two things happen simultaneously. Uh, uh, James Wilson, probably the best lawyer at the convention, says and. And, and that should be vested in a single person. Well, uh, that's interesting language because the definition in Blackstone's commentaries on the British Constitution, the definition of monarchy was the vesting of powers. And he uses the exact same, Wilson uses the exact same language as Blackstone. And simultaneously, um, Charles Pinckney, one of the youngest delegates and a real kind of Pop and Jay personality, uh, you can practically hear him gasp in the in the in Madison's notes. It's so it's such a moment, and he says, "Why that will give the president? You know, they aren't, don't call him president yet, but the executive or chief magistrate. That'll give the executive the powers of war and peace, and that means he'll be a, a monarch, an, an elected monarch, to be sure." but that'll make him a king. And so war and peace, it's, you know, the terms war and peace weren't actually in the Virginia plan. So where does he get that idea? And the reason he gets that idea is that they understand the executive power to include the powers that are vested in the crown under the British constitution and that then came over and were exercised by the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. So war that means at, even as of 1789, King George III, at least on paper, had the power to take the nation into war. He did not have to go to parliament. He had the power to make treaties meaning making peace, he did not have to go to Parliament. And so Pink, when Pinckney sees the executive power being vested in a single person, he sees the powers of the crown uh, being uh, replicated uh, in, uh, in, this, in the executive power plank of the, of the Virginia plan. No wonder he gasped. And, and the way that you sort of talk about this, it also is the way that I have often conveyed this in terms of the problems that they faced at the convention as well. When I talked to my students about this, particularly around the electoral college, it was like, how did they get to that? Um, and, and they do sort of say like they, the executive is important because it was a big problem under the articles of confederation. There wasn't that Hamiltonian energy, um, but how it's supposed to work is the part that you've written an entire book about um, that we don't always know, you know, which part is going to do what and how. Um, and so I'd like to ask you a little bit about what you talk about in this third section of the book in terms of the logical structure of article two um, and the powers that are in 
Article 2, and some of those powers, if we were to take Blackstone, would have been given to an executive. But according to the framers, they were given to the legislature, which I think is also a really interesting sort of teasing out of what was going on in 1787. And if you could talk just a little bit about how you lay out that argument in the third section, I would love it. A <laughs> little bit? I don't know. I'll talk, though. I could talk for weeks. Uh, the uh, Part of my conclusion through this study is I think the Constitution has a lot more to say that is at least somewhat specific that a lot of the Supreme Court's treatment of separation of powers has been highly generalized. Uh, and I think that there's more there. The, the way the Supreme Court views presidential power is through, uh, prim- the primary way is through an opinion uh, written by a great Supreme Court justice, Justice Robert Jackson, uh, in the early 1950s in a case called well, we usually call it the steel seizure case. It's Youngstown sheet and tube against Sawyer. And and he says everything really depends upon the relationship between the president and Congress. So if Congress is, um, has uh, explicitly or implicitly approved of what the president is doing, he has essentially unlimited power. If the federal government can do it, he can do it himself if he has the support of Congress. Uh, and then, but if the C- Congress disapproves of what he has done, then uh, he has very little power. A, we, we, we apply strict tests to his, uh, uh, to any, that is the courts will, will view presidential power with, with you know, great skepticism uh, uh, if Congress uh, disapproves. And then if Congress hasn't spoken one way or the other, Footnote, that's like 90% of the cases. So uh, he treats this as if it's just one more thing, but this is really the whole ball game. And there's there are no rules. He says that uh, in, in, in this case, we are, and he describes it as a zone of twilight. So I, I don't know, you know, who came first, uh, uh, Justice Jackson or, or, or the Twilight Zone, but uh, we're in a zone of twilight uh, where the, uh, the judges are, are, are forced to rely on what he calls contemporary imponderables in order to decide the, the, the case. I, 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 have to laugh because if they're imponderable, how are they supposed to ponder them? It's uh, and, and and I really worry about this idea of contemporary imponderables because I think what that actually is an invitation to do is to look at the specific political or geopolitical context of the dispute and and let that um, uh, let that dominate uh, the decision. And I think that is exactly the wrong thing. I, I have, I'll, I'll tell you in a moment what I think is the better analytical construct, but I think that's exactly the wrong thing because we're setting precedents. And the precedent that is made in, in light of one contemporary imponderable is going to be with us for another. And we need to, we need to be, uh, we need to transcend contemporary imponderables and think about the fundamental institutional considerations. Just one example of this. Um, 
happens to be from when I was a law clerk, uh, the question of whether the president, in this case, President Carter, could unilaterally uh, abrogate a treaty of the United States comes up. Uh, And this is a hard question. Uh, When it gets to the Supreme Court, they kind of flounder around. But the the bottom line is that the president can do that. So he can abrogate a treaty uh, uh, on his own, you know, notwithstanding the fact that the very first treaty that we entered was ended by an act of Congress, not by an act of the president. But put that aside for a second. The president can do that. I really do think uh, that the reason they decided that is that they were sympathetic to President Carter's desire to have rapprochement with the uh, with the uh, communist regime in China. Uh, and so they didn't like the fact that he was getting blowback from, uh, from uh, senators like Goldwater uh, in the, in the Senate. Well, okay. So now the president can do that. The next treaty to be abrogated is president Bush getting out of the, uh, uh, out of the uh, anti-ballistic miss- missile treaty. And the politics are exactly the opposite. Everybody who thought Carter could get out of the the, the Taiwan Treaty uh, could, was in it was on the opposite side, and and yet the precedent was set. And so uh, we should not, I, uh, you know, whichever the right answer is to that particular question. It should not have been influenced by the contemporary imponderables of the court's reactions to President Carter and China. Uh, it's exactly the wrong way to, to analyze separation of powers. And, and you talk about the fact that the understanding of executive power, not only in Article 2, but also in Article 1, um, is really tied to this sort of conception that the founders have about the separation of powers. Um, and that we commonly refer to these terms, separation of powers, meaning the president can do this, Congress can do that, the judiciary can do this, the states can do that. Um, but that the understanding of separation of powers is really about the power that the state has and that there are different ac- there are different actions that the different branches can take based on what the Constitution has given them. And Article Two, as you note, has a particularly distinct flavor compared to the other articles. Um, so, how does that work? How does the power that the various branches in our federal system have work with regard to who got which power? So one of the reasons I think people don't study this the way I wish they would uh, is that it was done, this was not on the floor of the convention. This was all done in a committee misleadingly called the Committee of Detail. Uh, you, you look at the Committee of Detail, you think, well, that must just be, well, detail, right? <laughs> so, But it's anything but uh, many of the most important uh, structural features of the Constitution came out of this five-man committee on which sat some of the most uh, uh, brilliant and influential members of the uh, of the convention. Uh, what, and and I'll, I'll talk just about the presidential side of this. But you know, after Pinckney points out how close the 
Virginia plan draft was to being an elective monarchy, they recoil and they create a president with very little power. He has the power to put into effect what Congress, the laws of Congress, to make some, but not the most important appointments, right? And to veto legislation. He doesn't have the foreign affairs power. He doesn't have anyway lots of power. He does. He's very. It's a very weak, but unitary uh, uh, executive. And then for a month and a half, they don't do any. That's the way it is. They don't. It's not discussed. It's just back there. And uh, three of the members who on that first day had had different things to say about the executive. Um, and didn't approve of Pinckney's. Uh, I'm not even sure Pinckney did, but uh, but it did, of the of the minimalist presidency that's adopted at the beginning of June, they are now on the committee of detail, and they just and they compl- they go in a completely different direction, and and they have a lot of knowledge about uh, executive power under. Uh, the British system and in American history, one of them, the chair of the committee, was the most effective wartime governor. He really understood uh, uh, executive power. Um, Wilson was the great lawyer at the convention. Anyway, what they do, I think, this is my theory, uh, is that if you look in Blackstone, Blackstone identifies roughly 42 prerogative powers of the crown. You know, you can add, you can number them in different ways depending on you know, how you lump them together. But roughly forty-two uh, of these, and I think that they understood those powers to be the core powers that needed to be allocated. And they, but they did not think that they were of an executive nature such that. It had that they had to give all of those to the executive. Yes, they were exercised by the crown, but many prerogative powers have the form of a power where the crown not only, they weren't just executing the law, but the crown was making the underlying policy. So they make the policy and they figure out how to carry it out, and parliament has nothing to do with it. This is sort of, that's typical of the prerogative powers. And the, uh, and so it's kind of a merger. It has legislative elements and executive elements too, um, and a lot of discretion. Well, of the 42, what my theory is that they have a mental list. Every single one of those is either explicitly or by very strong implication allocated to either Congress or the executive or, in a number of cases, denied to the federal government altogether. I mean, for example, the king had complete had, was the supreme head of the church. Well, we weren't going to have an established church, so nobody gets that power under our, uh, under our system. The king had the power to create titles of nobility. We're not going to have a nobility, so nobody gets that power. But a lot of these prerogative powers, these are crown powers, you would think of them as exact, are actually given to Congress. So the committee gives them to Congress, not to the president, by one count, just uh, a 13 
of the 27 enumerated powers of Congress in Article 1, Section 8, uh, were royal prerogatives under, uh, according to Blackstone in, in Britain. Uh, and then they allocate quite a few of them to uh, the president, but many of the ones that are most important and most dangerous, uh, they then either ke- they either check them uh, in a particular, or they reduce them in their in their uh, scope. So, for example, making treaties, yeah, the president makes treaties. That's a prerogative power. It's in the president. But the Senate has the power of advice and consent by two-thirds. Similarly for appointments. Um, the pardon power, very important, uh, a very dangerous power, um, uh, is given to the president, but Unlike, but but it's whittled down so that he can't pardon in cases of impeachment. And I think as a practical matter, even more importantly, he's limited to pardons with respect to federal law. Well, most criminal prosecutions at the time were not, there were very few federal crimes. Even today, I think the number is something like 95% of criminal prosecutions are under state law. So the pardon power for the king was every single application of criminal law in the kingdom. For the president, it's only a, a, a small slice, an important slice, but a relatively small slice. And, you know, as a former president, Trump faces political, investi- uh, political, I, I'm a Freudian slip, um, uh, criminal <laughs> investigations in the state of New York, uh, under New York law, the fact that he could not have uh, pardoned anybody involved in any of that is a very significant uh, uh, structural point to which, for which we should credit to the committee of detail uh, at the uh, uh, at the convention. And then what the committee then did, and this is, and and many scholars will disagree with me about this, but I make my arguments for why I'm persuaded in in the book. Um, that they then vest the executive power in those terms, uh, meaning whatever's left of an executive nature is then left to the president. So Congress is given very substantial uh, prerog- uh, powers of the of uh, of the uh, of the crown. Uh, Explicit powers given to the president, cabined in various ways. What's left over? Were royal authorities not important enough? They, some of them are really important, but they're not labeled as prerogative powers in Blackstone, and they are left to the president, I believe, subject to uh, overriding uh, uh, legislation passed by Congress within the terms of its enumerated powers. Most of the foreign affairs powers actually fall into this category. A lot of what the president does uh, in, with respect to foreign nations is not sending ambassadors and not making treaties, which are the only express powers given to the, to the president. Uh, they are, but they, were, they are of an executive nature, and, they are, uh, and the president exercises them. Now, as to some of them, uh, Congress also has an enumerated power. So, for example, uh, Congress uh, regulates trade with foreign nations. So, 
uh, the president can't just do whatever he wants with respect to tariffs. By the way, the president does do that all the time today, and Trump did it, was particularly dare I say, promiscuous in his uh, use of presidential power over foreign trade. That's because Congress has redelegated it to the president. It's not because it's an, a core uh, uh, executive function. And I think it's misleading uh, to say, as the U.S. Supreme Court has sometimes said, that the uh, president is the sole organ of the United States with respect to foreign affairs. Uh I think he's very important, but Congress also has a major role in foreign affairs as well. Um, the main reason why the president is the primary figure is just that it's so difficult for Congress to get its act together. Uh, and so most of the time, uh, the president uh, uh, gets his his will. Sometimes, by the way, even when the majority in Congress is against him because his veto power uh, can uh, can be wielded uh, under President. The, both, both houses of Congress voted to force an Ameri- the withdrawal of American troops from Yemen just a couple of years ago, and President Trump vetoed that, and uh, thus was able to keep a war going, uh, even though uh, there was not support from, uh, uh, and even in the uh, in the Senate where there was a Republican majority. And, and in the way that you have been thinking about the executive power, as I said, I, I found the third section on the structure of Article 2 and the way that you laid it out in terms of the, the um, direct power that the president has, the explicit power, and also the, the sort of limited power that he has, um, or that some of these are allocated to Congress, I found very fascinating to think about. But I also wanted to ask you a little bit about your approach to interpretation as you talk about it in the book, Um, because you suggest that it is not an argument for originalism, um, but that it's an exploration of the text of the Constitution itself um, and the history at the time. And you also note that the history that we have is is fragmented, um, even though we have the Federalist Papers and we have Madison's notes. But as you note, there are parts of them that aren't present. Um, can you explain a little bit about your approach to the interpretation of our understanding of the Constitution? Yeah, so when I say that I readers don't need to be originalists to be to get something from the book, I think an originalist is someone who believes that uh, the Constitution must be interpreted today in light of its original, the original understanding about its its meaning. I think you can be agnostic about that. The first thing we need to know is, uh, is we need to understand the Constitution itself, and and that I think is a, a necessarily a historical exercise. Now, whether today courts and Congress and so forth should be bound by that is another question, and I'm not engaged. I mean, I have opinions about that and have written about that elsewhere, but that's not what this is about because I think the beginning point is to see what it, you know, what it said, where did it come from, what did it mean uh, at the time, and then if we want to, you know, expand or contract, well, you know, that's that's a different question. So I, I don't think there's any doubt that the current 
understanding of the president's ability to, to take us into uh, military conflicts is 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 very different from what the Constitution was understood to mean. Uh, you know, I, I, there have been you know major conflicts of which you know Libya Libya under uh, President Obama is probably the biggest and clearest recent e- example uh, where President Obama actually you know negotiated with European with NATO powers about when and where to go and didn't go to his own Congress, which is where the constitutional authority for going to war uh, rests. And uh, I think that's off, but, you know, maybe that's right. I mean, we've now, maybe the demands of a dangerous world today uh, force us into a different situation, but let's not project that back onto the original, let's understand what the original constitution said. And then if we have arguments for a different, doing something else, let's uh, hear what those arguments uh, are. Um, Now you asked me about the logical structure in article two, and, you know, it comes really out of this work of the committee of detail. And I think there are essentially three types of power that the president exercises and that the beginning of wisdom is to distinguish clearly between them. Those powers that are given to Congress uh, can be redelegated to the president. Um, I, I think this emerges fairly clearly from the debates uh, in early June uh, at the at the convention. Uh, so, but it requires Congress to act first. Major important governmental powers simply cannot be exercised by the president unilaterally without authorization from Congress. He can't spend a dime if it hasn't been appropriated. He cannot borrow if, if the Congress is not authorized to borrow. When the debt ceiling crisis comes up from time to time, some people say, well, why doesn't the president just, you know, borrow? He can't, Constitution doesn't allow him. Uh, uh, simply to do that. There, he can't create criminal laws uh, on his own uh, authority. So there, there are a number of things where the president can act only if Congress has acted first and delegated him the power uh, to do it. And then he is confined to the terms of the power that Congress has given him. There's a second bucket, which are the prerogative powers which have been were given to the president expressly and for those, he can exercise them within their scope without, and Congress can't do anything about it, right? So this is why what the Supreme Court said in the Steel seizure case is so misleading because it implies that Congress uh, can, whether Congress approves or disapproves, uh, makes all the difference in the world. In this uh, important category of cases, uh, the president can act in the face of total opposition from Congress because it's it's his uh, these are his prerogative powers. He can veto whatever he wants, right? He can pardon whomever he wants. He has very substantial commander in chief uh, powers. He can negotiate treaties uh, however he wants. Uh, Congress couldn't tell him about how to engage in the negotiation of a. Uh, of a treaty and and so forth. So within these powers, um, uh, he is unilateral. But these are these are 
are defined and confined. Uh, and then there's another category, which are these residual powers, which come from the executive power clause. And they, at least the way I see it, and I explain uh, why, uh, why I think this is the best way to read the Constitution, these are subject to uh, congressional regulation and control and override even, uh, insofar as Congress has an, uh, an, an enumerated power uh, to cover it. Uh, and here again, I, I disagree with the modern Supreme Court. Uh, their biggest case recently is over what seemed like a trivial issue, but a very important um, issue in, in principle. The case is called Zivotovsky versus Kerry, uh, and it had to do with a, a, a Congress passed a law allowing American citizens who were born in Jerusalem to have on their passport Jerusalem. Israel, just the way if you were born in Paris, you could say Paris, France. Uh, but it has been the foreign policy of presidents of both parties, both Obama and Bush, uh, took this position uh, that uh, we did not treat Jerusalem officially as being uh, part of Israel, that this is a matter to be negotiated by the parties on the ground. And so uh, the executive refused to comply with the statute and people born in Jerusalem do not have Israel on their passport. It's like just Jerusalem. Well, this may seem like a trivial matter, but it gets to the question of when the president's um, exercise of foreign affairs powers are subject to congressional override and when they are not. And the Supreme Court upheld the unilateral authority of the president, even in the face of a statute saying that his uh, power, they viewed it as part of the recognition power, and they said that that is, uh, is absolute and indefeasible on the part of the president. I talk about this proposition at some length in, in the book, and I think that it is groundless that this is not um, that this is not the case. There was an argument over the scope of the recognition power, even in the Washington administration, uh, where Madison and Hamilton disagreed about, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, Madison and Hamilton disagreed publicly about where this uh, the implications of this power. But I think neither Madison nor Hamilton would have taken the position of the modern Supreme Court, which um, which treats Congress's authority as being an, a nullity. Uh, Madison thought that the president couldn't do what he did until uh, until Congress had acted first. Hamilton said, "Well, the president can act first, but if Congress." passes something to the contrary, he's going to have to give way. Uh, the modern court says that in this field, the president can act and Congress can't do anything about it. I think that's just a mistake. So in, in a lot of the way that you are talking about um, some of the, the guardrails on the executive power is that Congress is kind of the first mover um, in, in the sort of founder's conception. Um, and obviously, Article One, as I point out to my students all the time, what's the first article of the Constitution, and <laughs> what does that talk about, as opposed to two and three? Um, and and so, in this regard, we do have, you know, twentieth uh, century, twenty first century, where the president has become the center of American government um, in a lot of ways, and so has that undermined ultimately 
the structure that was set up in Philadelphia? Well, I think it has. And this is something when, when we ask, you know, how much we can let the original meaning govern us, govern us, govern us today, we have to think about uh, changes and the change in the way Congress operates is, is front and center. Um, a lot of the increase in presidential power has not been the president usurping power so much as it has been Congress abdicating power that uh, Congress just does not seem interested in exercising uh, the full powers of its uh, of its office. Sometimes they exercise some powers they don't have, but I think that Congress likes to envision itself more as a uh, as a oversight of the of the president rather than as a first mover. And they don't really want to be blamed for uh, for taking policy measures. They'd rather wait, have the president do something, figure out how it how it went, and then either uh, either share the credit or you know or or, or jump on it uh, uh, either way. So so. But and so that's I I there I don't know why that is exactly I'm not a psychologist you probably need a psychiatrist on your show to uh, explain why why congressmen uh, think the way they do but but related to this is the difference uh, between uh, the party part polarization that we now have uh, the founders did not expect political parties in anything like the modern sense at all. They expected members of Congress to exercise their independent judgment on each issue. Um, they did not, uh, it would have shocked them to find that, you know, most of Congress will either vote for or against something because of the, whether the president is in their political party or not uh, is the dominant uh, uh, point. Well, this has been true of much of American history, but the hyper-partisan polarization of our day, I think, has, has resulted in uh, harming the institutional independence of Congress. Because uh, even in my lifetime, uh, there, it, it was not always so. Uh, that the, It used to be that major figures in Congress... Uh, defended the rights of Congress as such, whether it was Republican or Democrat mattered less. Uh, I sometimes in my constitutional law one class uh, teach the uh, a House report after the uh, water, uh, not the Watergate affair, the Iran Contra affair. Uh, and President Reagan had asserted the authority to disregard acts of Congress that he believed were unconstitutional. Um, and that was denounced by a unanimous Judiciary Committee in the House. Even the Republicans said that that is just an intolerable position. You know, footnote, I think Reagan was probably right and the House wrong. But the but in terms of, I, I think that's the way Congress ought to operate is when they see it, it should not matter to them so much whether the president is of their party. It ought to matter to them more whether the president is exercising authority that he has or, or doesn't have. And when he oversteps uh, the uh uh, the power that he's been given, Congress ought to be the very first 
uh, to be concerned about that, even if it's a president that they like. And and in in this way of conceptualizing the sort of abrogation of the power that Congress um, has, and I know that's not what you wrote the book about, um, but in in thinking about that and the the sort of power that is allocated to the executive in Article Two. Some of the powers, as you note, that Blackstone gave to Congress have kind of like almost disintegrated in terms of Congress's use of them. Um, does that leave the executive in a kind of um, volatile position? Well, it means in many cases you have a power vacuum and uh, an, assertive, an assertive executive can uh, step into that. As much as much better position than any other part of government uh, uh, to step in and take advantage of the power vacuum. Because those powers exist, it's just that they're not being used by the branch that was given them. Yeah, and so there they are. It's like a tool lying on a table. Pick up the hammer and hammer the nail. Mm-hmm. Um, Professor McConnell, what are you working on now that you've finished this excellent book that has taught me so much about the executive? Well, I'm in the final stages with my co-author, Nathan Chapman of University of Georgia Law School, of a book about the Establishment Clause, so moving from structure to individual liberties. Well, I I hope perhaps when it comes out that you and your co-author will come and speak to me about that book. All we need is an invitation. This is going to Thank you so much for joining me today, Michael McConnell, who is the author of The President Who Would Not Be King, Executive Power Under the Constitution, published in 2020 by Princeton University Press. I assume one can purchase this book at Princeton University Press's website. Yes. (laughs) And is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence that you would like to tip your hat to? (laughs) (laughs) Since the book came out under the COVID, I haven't been in a brick and mortar bookstore since it came out. So I don't know who carries it. Uh, Amazon does though. Yes. I'm sure that they do as does Princeton. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.